So what is splashing everyone? seconds in and we already have three viewers that must mean that bradley is very popular um you guys are now tuned into siren sundays with your host me lashanti the siren today our guest is bradley watson science officer at the bahamas national trust and we do want to say a big thank you to our proud sponsor science and perspective with dr Anselino davis because we all need a little more science and a lot more perspective so welcome bradley thanks lashanti hi everybody good to How be here are you on this wonderful sunday my fellow KA alum. Shout out to Kingsway. <laughs> you want to sing the school song now or later? <laughs> no. We <Nope. laughs> this episode. No, no, no. Okay, okay. We got to ask Lino to get a song for us to sing then. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Definitely. I'm definitely excited to have you because as I was saying in my live earlier on Instagram, I think besides maybe you and Michael, you know, Boleg, who was on the show two seasons ago, I've known you guys the longest because you go, we all went to Kingsway. So it's really nice to kind of come full circle, right? And and go from Kingsway and drift apart and do different things and then still end up back in the environmental sector. Um, but yeah, so tell us who you are, what you do, and give us a little bit of information. Like, so what, what did Bradley do when he left high school? <laughs> oh man, Bradley went on a journey. <laughs> Bradley. <laughs> um, uh... Yeah, no, I did a year of COB and then kind of unconventionally, I did the best program like after my first year of COB. Um, I was a little bit young. Um, and then uh, and then after the best program, which, you know, did the first semester at the Island School, um, follow eight and became scuba certified, uh, really opened my eyes to in the environment because honestly, Back in Kingsway, um, we did a biology, you know, we did bio biology and Mr. Rutherford, my teacher, and I remember just one field trip where like uh, we went out to uh, the mangroves and then uh, that was when, you know, you learn like the, my first species name, like rise of four I never went to the mangroves in Kingsway. Because, yeah, I don't know, man, that just happened. You know, we got to go to the mangroves and it was... I didn't file a report. <laughs> <laughs> man, I remember that day. That was cool. That was... Because, yeah, that was like the one time when I was like, all right, word, this is not abstract. This is not out there. It's like right here, right now, you know? Um, and so then we went through that and then uh, got on to island school. And in island school, it was every day bombarded, environmental education, like really understanding your place and where you are. And then the other layer to island school was really good was that uh, we kind of interrogated uh, community as well. So three aspects were like, uh, we did the looking at the Lucayan Taino, those Indians that inhabited these islands before us. Uh, and if you like think about their population levels, I think there's a report that there were like at 150,000 individuals, which is like, they say it was the same population density on the out islands now as it was back then. Like there was a significant wow. number of those Indians here. And you think about their environmental impact compared to ours, like we have a huge impact compared to the way that they would have lived, right? So that was like a mind shift there. And uh, and then we did community. We were talking about like you know, what is this place that we're in? How does Island School interact with the community around it? And thinking about that, and that was kind of formative. And so then went off to school and did my undergrad in biology. Graduated from College of Charleston and uh, was focused on plant biology. I worked in a couple labs. So first one was like uh, we did some studies on sea urchin uh, gametes fertilization under uh, an acidified condition. So projected to like a hundred years into the future. And I bombed that. That was a horrible experiment for me to do because 
I did not ask any questions of my advisor or whatever, but it was really cool to like at the end of the summer get to figure out like the final run where it actually worked. And oh, those farm, yeah, their their motility was decreased and fertilization rates were not as, as high when you have an acidified ocean, right? So like right, you know, yeah. getting to climate change stuff. But yeah, plants. Then I went to work in Michigan um after undergrad for two field seasons, um, working at the Kellogg Biological Station. And a uh, really cool thing there was that this is like a long-term ecological research plot, right? Uh, I think there are like 20 some sites funded by the NSF. And these plots I was working in were like managed for, um, my plots were prairie plots, right? So they were planted out with a mixture of prairie plants, grasses, but that was just one of seven treatments. And the other treatments were like mixed agriculture. So you're thinking about like um, rotational uh, planting. So you have peas in one year and then you have corn in the next year. Um, mm -hmm. Some plots were like agroforestry plots. And I mean, an experiment maintained over 26 years. I think there were seven replicates in every plot and the plots were like half a hectare. And then there was a replicate site in Madison, Wisconsin. And so I was just like, this is the scale that science goes down on. Like there were plots in there that were like for a, a warm climate where there were literally uh, lamps placed in the field, uh, large enough like and replicated seven times where you warm the environment and see how that impacts plant community composition. And in those cases, you had some invasive species and noxious weeds that like took over because oftentimes those individuals, like, they have the genetic diversity in there to take advantage of a warming climate. Whereas like our crop plants are typically, you know, monocultures of one species, you know, something happens to them. For example, you think about bananas, you get diseases come in and they get wiped out. So that was like the agriculture Bradley. That was like, we're going to do mixed forestry. Like, you know, I was mm -hmm. on that train and then I continued into my master's degree. And the focus was now thinking about how do we produce biofuels in the future? So in these same plots where we had prairie grasses, um, we were thinking about if you took those grasses off of the field and you were to ferment them, to produce ethanol, biofuels, because oh, Obama wine. is really big on that. Pardon me? When I hear ferment, I always think wine and alcohol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. There's an alcohol, everyone, so I'm not totally off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. And uh, so you're thinking about that stuff, and it was really, then I started to really realize how policy influences everything, because um, you go to the conference and you think, like, why is everybody focused on this ethanol fuel, right? And mm -hmm. our corn growers in the U.S. are really focused on producing as much ethanol as possible. You have uh, most of the corn produced in the States right now does not go for any human consumption. You know, it's ethanol production and animal feed. Um, and I was just like, oh, no, Obama caused this because it was a policy thing that made their funding available for people like me to study these uh, uh, questions and try to find some answers. Right. And it also. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because, yeah, you have a. Uh, the farm subsidies that allowed this to happen. You know, there's arguments about that left or right, but when you think about a situation where you need policy to go first, to make a way for people to actually do the science and then implement that change in the economy, like it's a step-by-step -step process. Um, so I did the master's degree, uh, also did some work in Nebraska, looking at carbon concentrations in, in plots. And this is another long-term experiment that made me understand the value of like people taking the time to set up an experiment and maintain it into the future for the mm -hmm. future. Um, and so I think it was 26 years time looking at how much carbon was accumulated in pastures. So areas of prairie grass again, but some areas were burned and others were mowed. 
And if you understand like slash and burn farming in the Bahamas, the same thing happens in the Midwest. So annually they burn um, in April and you can see clouds and that's like prescribed burning. Uh, and you wanna know, is that depleting carbon in the soil and reducing the amount of concentration of um, carbon that can be stored in the soil? Or is it causing it to cycle uh, faster, you know? Um, and the result was that, you know, mowing is better than burning, um, but you know, why is it better than burning? Uh, is it because, uh, because you have multiple fractions in that soil, you know, where carbon is stored. It's not all stored in the same way. Um, so move on from there. I started to do an MBA after that master's degree. And uh, okay, because my dad said it was a good idea and I really was listening <laughs> to him and thinking about that stuff. And uh, the focus of that was I was looking at uh, sustainability, particularly in supply chains. Mm -hmm. And so I got an internship, like a graduate assistantship then. And uh, that work was focused on figuring out how to implement changes, right? So you have a bunch of people doing food processing in the Midwest and the area I was focused on was the Midwest. And it was like, how do we get people to reduce fuel and water use in these plants? So you think about uh, Smithfield Danielson, you think about Tyson, you think about these plants, you know, huge conglomerates own a plant and they can make one change and reduce water use significantly at a plant, right? And that has impacts across the globe, not just in their one place. Um, and so that was a fact-finding mission to figure out what they're doing and then to how to advocate that they make these changes. Um, stopped that halfway because my dad started this restaurant and we came home. And uh, you managed the restaurant. You went from agriculture to restaurant management. <laughs> nice flavor. <laughs> and it was trying to get a kitchen to save their composts, like to compost in a like a working restaurant kitchen, or you know, being somebody who's just managing and talking to my boss, my father, and saying like, "Listen, we need to get biodegradable containers," and then being like, "They expensive." <laughs> like, that kind yeah. of, you know. I was, yeah, it was a really transformative experience. Like, I don't know if I want to go back to that anytime soon. I'm really happy to be back in an environment. Um, but uh, it made me understand the real world and how you make changes on the ground, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, that's really big. And so now we're back at the BNT and I've been at the BNT for two and a half years and we plugged away at some work. Um, I uh, always had an interest in birds. I did some bird photography before I got onto the BNT. Uh, but then, you know, I got thrown into full on, like, I am an avian conservationist. And that's yeah. different from being an avian ecologist because we study, like you could study anything. You could study until the cows come home, but that ain't saving nothing sometimes. If, if nobody takes what you studied and puts it into play, then you got nothing. Um, right. So you need advocates and you need, you need conservationists. And so mm -hmm. realizing how we can conserve, my first project was Kirtland's Warblers, trying to figure out, you know, how do we create more habitat for these birds? Um, without funding to do so. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> That's always the ultimate challenge, right? Like we want to do so many things, but how can we do it with minimal to no funding? And I think that even that in itself is where community support is so helpful. That in-kind support, oh mm -hmm. man. <laughs> it's pivotal. And uh, yeah, so what we decided was that, not decided, but what became, became obvious is that ecotourism is the way that we make Kirtland's Wobbler conservation sustainable, right? So you're thinking about getting people on a farm to see a bird. Uh, you have guests who come to the Bahamas and uh, you know you have a down you have downtime, you have a rough day at sea. There's nothing else for them to do. Um, and so they're looking for activities. And I was always really against tourism being our 
mainstay and, and focusing on that industry and leading in. But when you consider um, short-term planning and you think, consider that we can be a pull tourism destination, which is, uh, I learned that from Nicolette Bethel back in the day. She had a talk about how, you know, push tourism is like people wanting to leave their country to get to the beach. And you can go to any beach, anywhere, doesn't matter. Pull tourism is being like, no, I need to go to the Bahamas to go to that bone fishing tournament, or I need to go see the Kirtland's Wobbler on that farm and eat that meal that they serve on the farm, right? So it's like, oh. you gotta pull them. Yeah. Pull versus push tourism. I really like that concept, actually. Because I, too, am a little like on the fence about should we keep using tourism as our main industry? Um, but that's a conversation, for, a controversial conversation for another day. <laughs> It has to do with community, though, you know, I mean, you think about sustainability, you cannot separate the environment from the society and from the economy. Yeah. 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 So as you were talking about that, we did get a quick question um, still on the topic of birds from our wonderful Megan, who was my guest last week. Um, what are the most critical birds that need conservation measures in the Bahamas? Bahama warbler, short and sweet. Bahama warbler, Bahama nut hatch. Um, those are the birds that I feel the Bahama Narach hasn't actually been seen since 2018. Uh, it's really- I heard about that one, yeah. Yeah, it's, when you think about extirpation, right? That's a big, scary word in biology. Extirpation means like, there's no more of this bird in this area, right? And mm -hmm. so you can imagine that a hurricane could extirpate the Bahama Warbler or the Bahama Narach from the Bahamas, like never gonna see that bird again. And uh, when you think about that, as a human living in the Bahamas, like suppose people never move back to McLeanstown and Sweeting Ski after Hurricane Dorian, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, climate migration is a thing and uh, it's happening to birds and it's happening to us. Uh, so Bahama warblers and Bahama nut hatches. Bahama warblers, I think have the most hope um, because there are still healthy populations in the South of Africa. Um, there is work going on right now. We've actually banded five of those birds uh, and so Banding birds allows you to note which individual you're looking at, uh, mm -hmm. do resigning work. And we want to have those birds banded so that we can study their life history, right? So we want to know how often do they reproduce or how much do they reproduce? What are they eating? Uh, what kind of ecological niche do they hold? And then if we remove certain birds for a captive breeding program, or if we were to uh, relocate some birds to Andrews, for example, which is a popular suggestion, but has some contention in the community, uh, but if we were to relocate these birds, we need to know how many we're moving and uh, how we're going to impact the, the healthy population we're dealing with on Amico. So um, that's it right there. And so we do have a question. Since 2018, can you repeat the name? Was That one was the Bahama Nuthatch? Yeah. Lashanti, for some reason, I'm nervous, you know. I think I need to slow it down and actually talk properly. Um, <laughs> you are doing so fine. And even... Like right. the, my friend who commented, Jasmine, when Scott was on, he was talking about how he was tagging birds. And I'm happy you brought the tagging birds up because I always found it so fascinating how you guys hold birds. I didn't realize their legs were that long. You got to really kind of get your fingers in there. To, to, and this, I'm using my hands to show something. And I always said, Scott, you got to take me out one day. I'm not holding a snake again, but I will try oh, to hold a bird. Like I think, and it's little things like that. Um, tagging of birds where people can get involved in conservation. You don't need a degree. You don't need super specialized skills. You just need to learn how to do something and know how to do it safely. And, and like you said, tagging birds is so important. Once they know how to ID, 
once they know how to catch it properly and handle the birds safely, we can be tagging birds every day. And then, you know, you have the system eBirds. And I'm, I'm thinking, was there another one? I think eBirds is the most popular one. eBird, I Yeah. Yeah, where citizens can take pictures of the birds they see. The, the program has a GPS, you know, coordinate thing in it, and it's so easy to get involved with conservation. And and as many people have heard me say on my show, I fully believe that everyone can be a conservationist. Everyone can be a marine conservationist, an avian conservationist, because it's a difference between scientists and conservationists. Like you said earlier, scientists can study whatever they want all day, and conservationists who, you know, all con all conservationists are not scientists, but most scientists can be conservationists, right? You take the data and you actually do something with it. And that's another important part of where the community comes in because we cannot do it alone. We can't keep preaching to the choir, you know? Yeah, no, there's no way that we can do this alone. And, you know, then you'd ask yourself why. The people around us are the reason why we're doing this. So we should all just do it together, right? It's, uh, and I do need to point out that holding a bird is a very technical skill. And okay you're dealing with oftentimes endangered species. And so you have a certain reverence for these birds. And so it is something that you need to spend some time doing, but we're working on expanding capacity. Capacity building is something that, you know, science and perspective is all about. Um, mm -hmm. something that you're working on. It's something that we all have to do to ensure that this work that we're doing doesn't end, right? Um, but we would need people to learn how to do this. And so you can have a community member who takes, you know, one weekend, um, not one weekend, but going on a weekend course to learn how to ban birds. And in the US, they have bird banding stations that people voluntarily work at. And you set up your nets every day during the migration period. And you have these long-term data sets where you can say, okay, these birds are moving more, you know, moving earlier in the year, or I had fewer of this specific species of bird. And the Bahamas is part of this migratory um, pathway. And so we would be doing work that contributes not just to our country, but to the whole globe. Um, it's, it's so important, right? Because, and I just want to give a quick shout out to Anessa Lundy. Um, I used to work with her when we were both at the Bahamas National Trust, and she put this like major science, citizen science program in my head. And I hope one day she gets to fully do it, and I hope I get to be a part of it. And I think that sounds amazing. Like I could imagine just like during that migratory season, because I think you've studied a few migratory birds as well where we have these stations set up on the different islands and it's just, and then people can come out and do it. Like people are looking for things to do. Uh, and that would be, I think that'd be so cool. <laughs> it's, I mean, science tourism is actually a booming industry in the Bahamas. And you think about people going out to tag a shark, right? And mm -hmm. you think about that's, that's the pool tourism that we need. That's like yeah. something that you can't do elsewhere in the world. You're never gonna see a Bahama warbler anywhere else but Grand Bahama or Abaco. That's it, it's all. Yeah. Um, so it's a sustainable avenue for us to take into, to take tourism into. Um, and then you think about all our beautiful national parks. I mean, you talk about the Abaco National Park, like that has two beautifully, I mean, the, you're walking through the pine trees, you're hearing the Bahama pirates calling, and then you can walk into the coppice area, which I am actually preferred over the pine forest. But I'm, uh, you have both of those ecosystems. And I got to tell you, to be a, a, a Bahamian experiencing a healthy coppice forest, it's, the trees are massive. It's the feeling is incomparable. So yeah. I advocate that everybody visit the parks as much as they can. Primeval um, Forest is one that you can visit in Nassau. Uh, are you messy? No, I was just about to big up my favorite park on Nassau. Like I think everyone yeah. needs to just take a minute. And I told my aunt Denise, who actually also has a question, I was like, we need to go to Primeval Forest. Like I need you to see what like this. It's that old growth, right? That old growth forest where we can 
we have the ecosystems to have these massive trees, but everyone just kind of looks at, oh, it's bush. And it's like, no, some of these areas are pine forests, some are coppice, some are coastal, some are, you know, more inland. So, but she did have a question. Um, and if you do know maybe an average number of ballpark figure, about how many birds do we get that like are migratory birds in the winter? So, wow. Um, okay. First, there was a question about the Bahama warbler and just wanted to point out that, uh, no, the 2018 was the Bahama Nuthatch was the last time it was seen. Um, and that was Zico McKinsey led a field team as well as a group from England went out there. But I just like noting when, you know, Bahamians are out there leading teams, because I think it was him and a team of COB students that he had doing work, uh, which is phenomenal, you know. Um, and then moving on, you were asking about uh, the number of migratory birds that passed through. So uh, I can't give you an exact number of migratory birds that passed through. But it is significant because these birds spend almost seven years in the Bahamas. So while they are protected by United States policies, and actually a lot of the conservation work is funded by the U.S., and we're extremely appreciative of that, sometimes I want to be like, that's a Bahamian bird who's going to the state sometimes. That's not a, that's not a, you know. Yeah, okay, so, it's not the other way around. Like, because if you think about going far and just to visit. <laughs> to breed, because they're following, uh, the resource patterns, just like that's how the Lucay and Taino got here. Um, they were looking for, you know, there's population pressure caused them to move. So these birds have these migratory patterns that they pass down, you know, they've been doing this for years and years. We are changing the earth right now. And so we're challenging them. But uh, yeah, to me, it's interesting to consider that maybe they're not, you know, U.S. birds that are here. They might be Bahamian birds that go to the U.S. Um, and then lastly, the nutrient cycling question um, or point I wanted to make. Um, if you just think about the fact that these birds are here consuming uh, tons of vegetation, they're consuming tons of insects, and they're just a deeply connected part of our food chains. And so they're not just like uh, visitors, we call them winter residents, right? And then you have the birds that pass through. And so, yeah, this is a complex system. Definitely. So I know, um, and this is just to backtrack a bit when you were kind of talking about the work you did in agriculture. And I had said this to you behind the scenes, and I said it on my live on Instagram, but I do want you to touch a little bit on this. Sorry, horrible. I working. And then you just started standing up. Like. I was like, what do I do? Sorry, I'm going to just turn the phone off. You could, you could take the call on speaker, and we can all say hello. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so while you do that, um, I wanted you to just talk a little bit about, you know, the work that you did in aquaponics, because funny enough, that's, you know, the field of study that uh, Michael Bowling is doing, shout out to him again, who was once my guest talking about his research in um, aquaculture with the spiny lobster. If you're watching, Michael, I get it right, right? <laughs> shout out to him doing his PhD. We're looking forward to having him come back home and make that degree work. But can you tell us a bit about the work you did with that and the you instructed um, for a food security course as well, right? I was a co-instructor, yeah. It was, uh, so yeah, shout out to Michael. Your work is uh, phenomenal and uh, it's gonna impact our country. So thank you for doing that. Um, and I, I was down there when I went to island school, we did, uh, we could choose a, an internship after the best program after you did the semester. And I chose to do aquaculture with uh, cobia, which is a pelagic fish. Um, and they were growing it in a cage and we were attempting to grow this fish. And I was like, we feeding this fish, fish that we import from Peru. Like these are sardines that we grinding up, right? Which is how, uh, and it's nothing against, you know, the project. It's a phenomenal project and you have to feed fish something, 
and there's a demand mm-hmm. for it. And once, as long as there's demand, you got to have a supply. That's economics, right? So if you find the yeah. best way to do it, you have to find the best way to do it. But for me, I was like, I was, I was kind of in a hard place. And so I was like, why don't we do the aquaponics work? And in aquaponics, we were feeding fish. Once again, we still had to have, there was fish meal in the fish food. So you're feeding those tilapia fish, but we're also exploring other options to feed the fish. And so one of the projects was trying to take jimbe, which is a common, it's actually an invasive species. I was going to say, it's common. It's a common invasive. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. it's an invasive species that was introduced to the Bahamas for agricultural purposes. So it was meant to be feed for goats. Um, and you can actually pelletize the jumbe. So you take it, you grind it up, and you pelletize those uh, that jumbe. You have to add some things into it to make it, you know, hold firm as a pellet. But the nitrogen content was enough to supply those uh, fish with protein. Um, that was an experimental project. It's not something that was brought into production, but it was something that we worked on while I was down there. Uh, and then I moved. Yeah, when I went to school, I did this class called uh, Origins of Agriculture, and. Uh, we were like, it was an anthropology class and we kind of inspected, you know, how do people grow food? Particularly in South Carolina, you got like African slaves who moved to the United States and were working there and trying to grow food that they knew, right? So you have uh, Carolina gold rice. Uh, well, in Africa, Africans used to grow rice and they did it using uh, paddies or, or fields that were regulated by the tide. And so they did the same thing in South Carolina, except they did it for um, their, their masters. Uh, and so then that was like a thought process, you know, and so how do we eat? Like, are we eating, would we, we're eating when we were in Africa or we eating stuff that people tell us to eat? And so you think about food security now. And when we did that course, you know, my input was really based on the origins of agriculture and trying to get people to think about, you know, why not eat bread fruit or, you know, we should be eating yucca, you know, like what is bread? I've never seen a wheat plant in my life. Like, why do we eat that? You know, yeah. somebody inspired, like, was like, Bahamians started eating chicken in the bag because of our time spent in. Uh... Look how you attacking our people. Pardon me. Look how you attacking the people. <laughs> no, 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 but they. Somebody told me that it was because Bahamians went on the contract, and we were going over to the states and mm-hmm. exposed to eating habits over there, and that's when we brought back the fried chicken, right? Really. Because we used to eat fried fish, we used to eat, you know, like. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of cross-cultural interaction is what informs how we eat and how we live. And so now we have to take advantage of that. If we're conscious of what we're doing and conscious of how we make our decisions, then we could like consciously influence change, you know? Yeah. And I think what's so important um, about what you've been saying so far is the way you've been looking at communities from the past and you're still, you know, obviously working with communities in the present. And I think, have you seen any, you know, you said you were looking at how the indigenous people lived in the past and you just mentioned, you know, the slaves from South Carolina, which we know, Uh, The slaves that came here, the black people here are the ones that came from America. So when you kind of look at, and if you can answer this, and I know this is like off the wall question, how has whether agriculture or our relationship with the environment changed from those communities to our present community? Like if you, have you seen any differences in your studies with that? Specifically about the agriculture and these eating habits that you're talking about. And I know we're kind of bouncing a little away from the (laughs) the central theme, but I think it's going to come together. I know how this is connecting in my head. We're going to wrap this to climate change in a minute. So tell me. Well, I think that we are coming full circle. You know, um, permaculture has been advocated for a while now, and people are interested in that's like uh, decolonizing the diet. Yes, yes. (laughs) Um, But yeah, permaculture is like what we used to do. So there was this uh, anthropologist who, when he was studying the people in a... South America, right? 
Mm-hmm. And you're thinking about like, number one, you have this thing where they introduce the banana, right? The banana is Polynesian. The coconut, that's Polynesian. Um, oh I think yeah. Because so people, like, think, people think coconuts are like native. I mean, they grow here nicely, but there was an animal. But it's not an insult because we ain't native either. You know, <laughs> like we just adopt them. Like, <laughs> Humans are the greatest invasive species. Trust me. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, and oh, I didn't expect that one. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, yeah, so he would talk about these dooryard gardens, right? And homeboy was mm-hmm. like, the point that they made at one point was, oftentimes you would have these communities growing bananas before the Spaniards got to them. Like before the colonists who were moving around and moving these these uh, genotypes around, like you could have, a, a, for example, Aki in in in, in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. You think about like there was a there was actually an attempt to stop you from growing Aki because the colonists were getting poisoned when they tried to eat it, right? That's because not nice. understanding of the but Aki is a West African fruit, so yeah. we brought it from West Africa with us, okay. and. There was no way he was going to take that away from the Jamaicans. The Jamaican slaves who was there, that's like, that is that is food. You know, that's food that we don't have to compete with you for. Because yeah. we grow these food on the farm. And when you have good, a good crop here, you're going to take the best, but you're not going to take our hockey. Yeah. Um, and then you think about, because that professor, his name was John Rashford. He was from Jamaica, actually. And he went to, his undergrad was like a Quaker school where he moved around the world, actually. So I learned a ton from him about like, and his dissertation was on, um, why people don't plant trees when you're a tenant farmer. So if you don't own the land, you're not going to plant trees because you're not going to have that to inherit. But now we're talking about permaculture. I'll take my tree with me. <laughs> so now we're back full circle. We get to do agroforestry. We're talking about like, how do we build farms that last generations? We're talking about soil health. We're talking about actually taking ownership of the place that we live. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's a full cultural shift when you think about how do we change what we eat? How do we change how we farm? And generally just how we live. You know, you gotta change the palate. Yeah, I think what you said, that is very important because you know, a lot of people, especially like in our age group, um, if you're not fortunate enough to either own land or have land that you're probably gonna inherit from your parents, it's really hard for you to wanna kind of invest in these full scale trees. Like, first of all, you take long to grow. You might not even stay here long enough for the growth. So that's why one of the things that I saw happening over COVID was the community started planting more. You see people growing these quick things like herbs, tomatoes, um, cucumbers, peppers, very quick things. And so while those are nice, I do think sometimes we forget the value of having these big trees, not only for shade, but again, when we talk about climate change, right? Like these are the big trees that are going to be holding onto this carbon. Like we need to to plant more trees, right? <laughs> That's that's one of the ways I think um, that we always kind of talk about to people when it's related to the terrestrial environment, just plant more trees. And I think we really should have a push for in urban areas, community gardens. Like I've heard about them like in the US where they'll put them on the top of the apartment complexes. We don't build buildings that high, but I do think we need to start getting into community gardens. Like, and if any MPs are listening, I don't get political on my show, but MPs, potential MPs, consider that for your constituency. And I'll leave that there. Just consider that for your constituency. I think it's something that, like you said, it's going to be there for generations. Like if you live in this area, you come together as a community, you plant your ackee tree, you plant breadfruit, and then you harvest and it's free. It's just free food for people, you know? So. Which is like, let me just get impassioned right here real quick. Go, go for it. <laughs> like, 
think about it. We have subscribed to this belief that people are supposed to fight for food and life, which is not true, right? When we were hunter-gatherers, when we evolved, right? When we were out on the savannas of Africa, we went and hunt and gathered for four hours a day, not planting anything and not worrying, right? And now when we took on this state society situation where you know, you're not allowed to move around and so you have diseases accumulating where you are and you have to uh, maintain soil health because you're depleting the resources in the area you're in, that's why we have to work hard and break our back. You know, there's this thing where there's an allegory between the Garden of Eden and, and out there going out there and working. You know, that is sometimes people reference that and saying that that is the when we took on the state society and when we needed to have a government and we needed to have a leader and there was a king and all of that. Um, so we weren't meant to live that way. We weren't meant to plant corn every year and reap it in the Bahamas. We were meant to plant a, a, a breadfruit tree and that tree is going to bear every year. Mm -hmm. and you don't have to weed around it and you don't have to do none of those things. But, you know, it's just because, number one, our population is so large now that, you know, the area we're in can't sustain us. And then number two, our habits are not tailored to where we live. Um, and so this is why we have to find ways to adapt. And that's what sustainable development is about. We have to balance all of these things. And I think and just even that point you just said, it's too much of us living here. I'm sure I've said this before. I'm going to say it again. Young people, let's move to the islands. Let's. Nassau is so congested. It's... <laughs> See, and that's an, I want to go to Eleuthera so bad, and I think everybody's going to Eleuthera. Nonetheless, I think it's so important <laughs> to declutter New Providence. And I think by doing that, so many other things can unfold, right? And then, and that I might be teetering into more again of a political conversation, but we do need to decentralize New Providence. Like, and, and we've seen, you know, climate change is only getting worse. We saw hurricanes, Matthew, we see Dorian, Irma, like, if Nassau was to get hit, if New Providence was to get hit, then the whole country is going to suffer, you know. Um, and and that's the next thing, right? Like in talking about, I love how you just just get up while I talk. In you are a funny guest. Is anyone else entertained by his? <laughs> no, I, I had to. My dad. I'll be honest with you. My dad put on a pot of rice, and this whole time I've been trying to judge. Like, do I need to shout? Do I need to? So I was just like, it's like, no, we're gonna break. We're gonna turn off the rice. It's necessary. Yes. Okay. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you for that. So, um, right, hurricanes and climate change. One of the things I think, um, and it's not really on us as Bahamians because we do have a very small footprint in comparison to other countries and the big corporations, right? Um, yeah, everyone's entertained by your antics. Thank you for making this show probably one of the funniest. Um, but yeah, I think people often think that climate change just means that things are getting hotter. No, my fellow Bahamians, Climate change is when you have extreme weather. So it's going to get colder in the winters that we used to not have winters. And it's going to get hotter in the summers. And even a report just came out this July was the hottest July on record since we've been documenting, you know, temperatures in the world. This July has been the hottest ever, ever. It's going to keep getting hotter every year. And then it's going to keep the cold fronts are going to get colder. And this is what climate change is. It's an it's a imbalance. Let me show you how prepared I am, Ashanti. <laughs> what, the rice done? Is that how prepared you are? Oh, Lord. Yeah, okay, fine. You win that one. <laughs> um, but from that IPCC report, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I'll just read. Can you say what IPCC is for everyone? International Panel on Climate Change. Um, I needed to know, too. I forgot. Yeah, no. And it's, 
this whole thing like about these international panels in the UN and what's their job, like we need to pay attention to that. And it needs to be public knowledge what the UN is trying to do. And the sustainable development goals need to be like ingrained in us uh, so that we can know how to move forward, you know? So okay. super important. And then let's just read this one section. Uh, global okay. surface temperature in the first two decades of the 21st century, so that's from 2001 to 2020, was 0.99 degrees higher than in 1850 to 1900, right? Wow. So that's just on average. You know, in the Bahamas, that fluctuation might be different. Uh, it's actually, I think they said something like doubled in the ice caps when you compare. Like, temperature has increased twice as much there as it has in the rest of the world. But I'm, uh, yeah, no, and people are actually even going to the point of writing. I found a, a journal article that was talking about, like, how temperature increase is going to influence labor and how labor productivity is going to decrease because oh. it's too hot to work outside. I thought, I thought you were meeting labor as in like delivery of children. I was like, I haven't had kids yet. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> my face and I was like, oh, but yeah, like, it's already too hot to be having people work outside, but. You call that representation because if you weren't a female in here to like reference that and like to talk about labor and like think about, you know, because if we don't interrogate the situation we're in fully, we'll be caught unaware. Right. So you got to think about that. Yeah. <laughs> but and, and just to touch on that, um, and as a woman, yeah, female representation, we do need more women helping with this informing of policy because it's so male centric right now and it's so oversaturated with men in these policies. They're not thinking about all the different things. Like just that was a perfect example. You say labor, I went straight to childbirth and you were talking about hard work. And there's this book that I'm reading. Um, I don't have it near me, but it's like women, um, women lead the way. And to reach the perfect balance, you need at least 30% women on decision-making bodies because we Which are- Which is a low bar. And, and exactly, that's not hard, right? 30% is three out of 10, right? So just that much is enough to influence full-on decision-making in regards to thinking about all these other factors um, and that's across the board, any sort of board, any sort of um, decision making body, whether it be something like government or even just like a school PTA, which technically that's usually heavily female. Right. But but just it's definitely something to think about. So when we're thinking about climate change and climate migration, yes, you have the hard laborers, which are men. But what are some of the jobs that are more women focused that, you know, are now being affected by this climate change? I think you were right. I mean, if you think about. Because you think about labor in a lot of the developing world where and the tropics is where climate change is going to hit as far as changing cycles. So now you have to think about like maybe we should be working from like 5 a.m. to 9 a.m. and taking a break. We can start a fight. <laughs> I'm just saying there has to be solutions. There's going to be enough to get people to work for nine. <laughs> maybe we need to work from home. Maybe we need to do things like that. There's just going to have to be some sort of court, court, conscious adaptation to these changes is going to happen. And the thing about it is when you think about labor or when you think about women, because those are underrepresented groups, you say they, they're going to get caught in the crossfire. At the end of the day, you know, and you, you consider an economy, they are the basis of the economy. You cannot move forward without them. So you have to really, and I think that this is one of my big things right now, is advocacy. The, the big investment right now needs to be in getting people to understand the situation we're in and to advocate for investment in climate change adaptation and mitigation strategies mm -hmm. on a concrete wide level right mm -hmm. so you have all of these changes happening across the world and if we're not fully aware 
we're never going to be, we're going to be caught at the end of the train instead of being at the front of the train. Uh, and right. another note I want to make is like, I've consciously just decided recently, like I'm no longer going to consider myself a uh, part of the developing world and not responsible for um, global climate change because okay. I benefit from the society we live in. Right. And that's almost like, in my opinion, having somebody who, says they're not going to take responsibility for ending discrimination against people of color because mm -hmm. they aren't influencing that discrimination. Like, no, we all responsible for this. We all have to fight this, you know? So, yeah. you know, even though we're in the Bahamas, we need to like think about our influence globally and how we can change the, the patterns that we see around the world, not just because mm -hmm. we don't emit as much as other places, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it's so important to talk about, even in this point, granted, and I think this number, every time I, I remember this figure, and I just saw it again on a recent post, 70% of the carbon emissions and, you know, this pollution in the air comes from 100 corporations. Now, I don't know which corporation is exactly on that list, but there is always this push, right, for an individual to make these changes. And while I totally agree with that, because I, even I have been trying to be a lot more conscious progressively on thinking about my footprint, like instead of buying... And I thought, literally thought about this the other day in the food store. Instead of buying the watermelon that's already cut, wrapped in plastic, just buy the whole watermelon and cut it yourself. Little things like that. Um, but yeah, so back to the whole thing, right? So I think as individuals, yes, you can make lifestyle changes. But if we as individuals can come together as communities, the public can push the private sector to make changes. And it's literally just all about sharing information and making a stand. You're either an active supporter or you're a passive bystander and, and the world's just going to explode. And you just look back and be like, oh, well, I could have, should have, would have. Right. And and that's why I think it's so important for people to make these conscious changes. Conservation does not have to be for rich people either. Yes, of course, if you can't afford just to use my example, if you can't afford to buy the whole watermelon versus the watermelon in the plastic, okay, cool. But then just continue thinking about ways in your life, in your budget, that you can make less of an impact on the environment and how you can support companies that are actually advocating for these changes and doing things that, that are helping support the agenda that you have, okay, reducing carbon emissions, right? And I think just as Bahamians, when we look at this at a global scale, we get smacked upside our head every year with a hurricane. Hopefully we don't get none this year. We should be more vocal on a global scale to other countries. Y'all like to come here on vacation. Y'all just duck us during hurricane season and y'all causing all these carbon emissions and we can only keep getting hit harder, right? Look at you, you ready. Oh yeah, oh <laughs> yeah, I'm going for them. <laughs> when, it's, when we talk about conservation in the Bahamas, when we talk about climate change, we need to be the, I don't know if the correct term is the whistleblower. We need to get up on our soapbox and we need to be shouting to the mountaintops. Y'all need to cut this carbon out, like, carry a carbon. There we go. Carry a carbon. So look at these guys, right? Coca-Cola. Coca right? We got a Coca-Cola platinum now, so you know that they mm -hmm. have a solar installation. And they that, do. Yeah. So Coca-Cola, so when you think about corporations, right? One of the cool things about corporations is that they have this thing called corporate sustainability uh, reporting. Corporate, pardon me, uh, mm -hmm. social responsibility, CSR. Yeah. And one of the good things about these large corporations in some instances is like, and maybe on balance, they still win in. They still pollute more than they are. They give you a model. They give you a model to use mm -hmm. for saying to a company, please tell me what you're doing good for the world so I could choose you so I could know why I choose you. Um, and so 
that's one organization, you know, you have those guys here in the Bahamas with a plant and they have solar installations, right? And so you think about it, like, that's also an economic decision. Yeah. It might be economically beneficial for them to do that, right? Just as uh, on the individual level, there might be an economic benefits to choosing the sustainable solution. Yeah. For example, with your watermelons, right? Why is it in plastic? Why is it pre-cut? That's a labor question. Convenient. You want to cut them all in, yeah, convenience, right? But in some places, you go to some countries where they would, the same price, they'd cut that watermelon in front of you. Or you would walk up and you would feel comfortable buying a watermelon that was cut, but not covered in plastic. Maybe it was covered in some other material, right? But yeah. that's that's a choice thing. That's in your mind. For example, I think in Europe, they don't um, refrigerate eggs because yeah. in the US, yeah, you like, in the yeah, you know the story, like they dip it in a solution that dissolves the coating on the egg and now after you dissolve that coating, you have to refrigerate it versus an egg that doesn't need to be refrigerated. Do you know how much energy we spend refrigerating food? Like, if you were eating more food, food that was again to people listening. Keep your refrigerator closed. If you ain't, get and stuff them out. And I will leave that pin right there. Like little things like that. I think people don't realize you could you could save electricity. You could save all these fossil fuels being burned by the electricity company. Just it's a little chain effect. But that was a target at someone. I could just leave <laughs> leave that in the atmosphere. <laughs> I'll even follow you up on it. Uh, the, the way that we have our refrigerators designed is for convenience in a world where it's cheap to burn oil, right? Yeah. There's no reason to open a fridge from the front and let all of the cool air fall out. When you have a chest freezer, mm-hmm. so if you're looking at a sustainable, say you're going to do an off-grid building, what you would do is you would take one of those chest freezers and modify it so it's just a refrigerator temperature. And when you open that, all of the cool air stays inside. So when you open your fridge, you have to recool that whole thing because the whole cool air just drop right out. Because cold air sinks and hot air rises. Ooh, we got some science going on here, guys. And perspective, because like, (laughs) (laughs) Doctor Davis, there you go. Um, but yeah, you think about it. That's just that's that's convention. When you think about conventional wisdom, think about the word conventional. Like convention exists because somebody else thought this and passed it on to you. You didn't interrogate that. You didn't Mm -hmm. think about why you're doing that. You know. So the more that we sit down and think about why we do what we do the more little, like, really cool ways we could find to, to flip the script. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, even just a quick thought on your fridge example. I recently saw that somebody had their air conditioning um, at the bottom. And I was, like, at the, like you know how we have air conditioning? You sleep on the floor. <laughs> but, and I remember thinking that was so interesting. I was like, I wonder if this person realizes, you know, that you could totally save so much money if your air condition was higher up. Because, again, the simple science, right? Hot air rises, cool air sinks. Like and and that fridge thing, I totally. I think I'm about to go get a chest freezer for real. Like that blew my mind just now. Um, but as you've also said, um, we really shouldn't, in my opinion, and just thinking about this, we only have to refrigerate things because we're not using them fast enough. And in an ideal world, we really wouldn't need a refrigerator. You know, you pick your fruit, you pick your bread fruit, you pick. It can solve out the ground, you know, and you cook these things directly and you make just enough for that day. Um, I think, and, and to me, the societies that did that, which probably were, you know, our indigenous people who didn't have that convenience, they were probably living more present as well. Like, you know, like they, even when it came down to eating meat, you kill the cow, you share it with the community, ain't no fridge, or you preserve it with the salts and stuff, but ain't no fridge. Like, take it to the next level. Yeah, that's, that's like, we go way, way out, but. 
we go into society, we go into the economy. There were a couple of things you said there. Mm-hmm. You don't have the time. Oftentimes people need to use these conveniences because our society doesn't allow the income level to sustain you to take time every day to go and cook yourself a fresh meal. You yeah. stop on the Wendy's, right? Um, it's on. just, a, it's a cool thing. Like we have to address this thing. Like we, there's nothing exists by itself. We have to address the whole thing about how people live. If we were cooking our own food, yeah, you could even think about this part. People can't afford to go out and buy, you typically, you want to buy baby carrots or you want to buy um, the prepackaged vegetables. But if people understood how to process their own food and how to grow this food, you might be able to access the farmer's market. You want to go to the produce exchange and get yourself a solid quantity of, of, of potatoes, mm-hmm. sweet potatoes that you could rest on your counter and cook mm-hmm. through them during the week. Or do you not have a vehicle and you're not able to drive to the produce exchange and access this this quality produce at a low price? You know, there's so many levels to how this goes, and that's why the community aspect is so important. Like everybody has a role in this. If you have a passion, you could follow that passion and improve the situation through your passion, no matter what that passion is. You know, there's there's something to do. And I think just to touch on that farmer's market point, and we've like we're still on topic. We I think we're hitting our discussion points. Like, yeah, yeah. I think just an idea that I had, as you said that, right? Like not everyone can go to a farmer's market. I did advocate earlier for community gardens, but there are actually even, um, I think, I can't, I think it was Chicharney Farms that did it. Not that I want to give any endorsement to specific farms, but that was actually delivering produce, produce. And you get your little box, you know, your vegetables and stuff in it, but then it goes back to, right? Like people are more interested in already processed things which is also, not only is it bad for the environment, but it's bad for you, right? It's better for you to get as organic and as clean as possible. But again, you have to look at the community, you have to look at what this person can afford, what is it what suits their life. So I always try to tell people whenever I try to advocate for like lifestyle changes, um, think about what you can do and do it. Like if you can afford to be vegan and this is something that you, and this means that much to you, then do it. You know, it's, it's really that simple. If this is something you want to do, if this is something you're passionate about, find little steps that you can take to make that big change. And on on the CAC, um, the CSA box, community sponsored agriculture, like you 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 get your subscription of a box, right? Mm-hmm. Imagine that's here. Um, I believe yeah. that's how Chick-Charney was running it. I know that you could get a box of grocery delivered, mm-hmm. but I just wanted to introduce this idea. You know, yeah. um, we have to fund these farmers. Farming mm-hmm. ain't cheap, and it's not reliable. So it's a risk that's being taken every time, right? So if your support is simply to support a farmer uh, and, and access quality food, but also making an outing, take mm-hmm. it as a chance for you to get outside. If you could go to the farm, if you can take your child there, if you could that's take the family member there, if you could go out there and experience that. Because, you know, if you think about a farmer, they, they, they have a place that you could experience. And that's why you do the farm tour then. And that's why you go to the farm and you, you get on the mailing list and you think about doing the activities on the farm. And you make this a part of your lifestyle because COVID has showed us that, like, it ain't all going to the movies and going to the bar. There needs to be something else that you, you know, you're taking your time and you're investing in your community and you're enjoying it. It, it feeds you back. Yeah. Um, I think there was something else, but I'm going to take some time to think so we could come back home because we get, yeah, I wanted to make sure we focus on the four C's. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like I said, we weren't too far off topic. Um, you can start talking a bit because 
the only other things, you know, how do these four C's tie together in the Bahamas? We've been hitting that. You know, you talked about what you've been working on. Um, we've been talking about ways people can get involved and do things for conservation, but are there any other specific ways that people can get involved with what you're doing specifically or what the Bahamas National Trust is doing specifically when it comes to um, the bird research, the monitoring at national parks and all of these other things going on? So one thing that's really cool is, uh, and I'll share a link with you at some point, um, there's a book called the Bahamas Natural History uh, book. And uh, it's, it's an encyclopedia of what's going, of, of what you see around you, right? And we're talking about giving you a field guide for the Bahamas, right? And if you were to purchase that book, that's, that's something you can do for the BNT to help us. But I really want to advocate that people purchase that book for themselves because it opens up a ton of enjoyment for you. You know, there's a difference between walking down the road and seeing a bird and not knowing it. And like knowing like, oh, it's this bird and this is where it lives and that only exists in the Bahamas or it's only found in the Caribbean. It just opens up the world to you. It, it really does. And so I would advocate, you know, taking advantage of every opportunity you have to enjoy where you are. Um, you know, that really is important. Uh, my supervisor, uh, my, my former supervisor, Shelly Kant, uh, Shelly Kant Woodside, I would ask her repeatedly, you know, how do you convince people to plant trees? And she was like, you got to tell them, you got to like convince them that it needs to be loved, like that that it, that diversity is important just in and of itself, not for any other reason. Um, and so I think people can see that. I think people have an appreciation for diversity. Just if you look at the different diversity of clothes that we wear, the, the cars that we drive, uh, you know, take that same eye and apply it to the universe around you uh, because that's what's going to cause you to, to say plant a tree or not cut that tree down. Um, just take the time to look and, and appreciate it. Yeah. Which is why it's important to explore your parks. And I know there have been some pop-up events that happen. Um, I've heard about it a lot of primeval. I'm not sure if it happens at the retreat anymore, where you guys even take it a step further. And you either have, you know, um, Pericles Malus talk about some history, and you even have some people doing the fresh bush tea, you know. And and I think that's also important because, you know, we a lot of humans, you know, you get sick, oh, you need some Cerise, but why? You know, what else are the, what other types of things you have been passed down, um, which that trickles into another topic. Um, and as we start to wrap up, you know, like what would you say if you had to do a sentence or two um, based on your work um, and your experience, maybe lessons learned in the past, what is a final thought that you want to give our viewers? Hmm. Deep one. And don't try to stand up in the middle of talking again. <laughs> uh, my final thought is uh, uh, do what you can now. Uh, whatever you can do, whatever coming to you, whatever you think is necessary, just do that now. Um, the sooner that we take action, uh, you know, life is an iterative process, right? Iterations is like every time you change it, you change it, you change it, you try it. So the sooner we start trying to make changes and to, to do something, uh, the sooner we understand how we could be more effective, right? So personally, that's my mantra right now. And, and I just want to share that with everybody, like do what you can right now um, and then see what happens and, and, and make your adjustment. Yeah. Oh, Bradley, I love that. Do what you can now, right now. Like, right. beautiful. Uh, and our final question before we close out, you know, I asked my guests this all week, you better pick right. What's your favorite sea creature and why? <laughs> my favorite sea creature. As we all know, mermaid is everyone's favorite sea creature. You can't say mermaid, but we know, we know. I can't lie. I, I recently learned a lot about uh, the algae in, in our marine ecosystems. Um, okay. So they kind of win in a little bit, but... Nassau Grouper. Nassau Grouper is my favorite because they are calm. They will approach you if you're on a dive, if you're swimming. 
they are not going to run away from you and they're just existing in their space. Um, so I just really feel like we've been taking advantage of them, you know? So let's be nice to the Nassau groupers because they, they have a good vibe. They, they exist extremely long lifespan. Um, and they just, they just, yeah, they captivate Nassau group. They stay out of people's business. That's how you live long. Be like the Nassau group. Just chill out, man. Just chill out. Just keep it calm. Keep it calm. <laughs> Definitely. So thank you again all for riding another wave with us. Um, catch you next time on Siren Sundays. Shout out to our sponsor again, Dr. Anselino Davis from Science and Perspective, because we all need a little more science and a lot more perspective. I forgot so, something, Nishanti. I could just ahead. mention something I think I was supposed to say in there. Um, I'm taking a year-long break to go and study. So I just wanted to throw out, you know, kind of... Oh, is this an exclusive? Oh! <laughs> yeah, I guess this might be an announcement. I guess there's an official announcement coming. Um, but... Uh, Gonna head off um, to uh, St. Andrews University and study sustainable development for a year on the Sheevening Scholarship and then come back. And so really gonna have, uh, interrogate these ideas a lot more, take a year to, to sit back and think. So if you all have information, I'm gonna be watching. Lashanti, I'm gonna keep watching your show because like, if we yeah, don't keep talking, we move forward. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so. so exciting. Congratulations on that, Bradley. We look forward to you going off, doing the thing and coming back and making a difference. Um, and thank you all again for watching. Thank you. I will see you guys next week. Always yours, Lashanti the Siren. Thank Harvey. you so much.